What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast is a slight detour as we hear from our host, Bonnie Sewell. She's here to share her most pressing thoughts on why this is not a dress rehearsal when it comes to money. Today, I get to play host. My name is Jesse Hughes, and I'm the Client Relationship Manager for American Capital Planning. I'm mom to two adorable little boys who love their grandmother very much. Plot twist, Bonnie would be that grandmother. (laughs) And I'm excited to pick her brain today. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Jesse. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, we're going to jump right in. I have a whole lot of questions that I want to ask you today. So first, I want to talk to you about a recent presentation that you gave to the National Women's Roofing Association. What did you talk to them about? Well, first of all, fascinating group of women that I didn't even know was in the world as a group prior to being asked to speak with them. They are women roofers who are sometimes on the roof and sometimes own the roofing company and have a whole, some of them are executives, they have a whole uh, long list of things that they do in that world. And we talked about in that presentation, the top five disruptions, financial disruptions for women along with the best solutions for those disruptions. And um, what I found so fascinating about their group, we do talk a little bit uh, about the pay gap, of course, and those gals are paid 92 cents on the dollar versus the typical 82 cents that is more widely published. Of course, everything's all over the map, but I was thrilled that they're in a man's world making close to a man's wage. So that was a piece of good news. That is great news. What sort of questions did the group have for you? I'm curious. At the end, we invited questions and they had a a bunch of different questions, but it was interesting to me and probably reflective of the dangerous sometimes work they do and difficult physical work uh, that some of them do. They asked a lot of questions around insurance and a lot of people might hear that and go, oh, kind of dull. However, uh, in our world, we know insurance protects all sorts of risks. And these gals seem to have a very good bead on uh, how risk plays into problems. And so I really thought their questions were fascinating because uh, I talked to a lot of women's groups and that isn't a typical focus. So I, I really appreciated the fact that they were evaluating risk and looking for ways to moder- moderate that and get it further from their lives. I'm sure a lot of people have similar questions, if not more specific to their industry. Is that presentation available for others to enjoy? It is actually. It's on the website under probably webinars, but it's 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 on there. AmericanCapitalPlanning.com. Okay. Yep. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Switching topics, I've noticed that weddings are making a comeback. What money questions should anyone getting married be asking before they walk down the aisle? 
Yes. So interesting. You know, when we talked about having me do this podcast as sort of a new beginnings coming out of the pandemic, coming out of winter, weddings are coming roaring back. And as you know, we often cite a statistic from an old NPR article that cited a study that said something to the effect of there is a correlation between what people spend on the wedding and a potential future divorce. Now, it doesn't mean that if you know you spend a lot on the wedding, you're automatically going to have a divorce. But the correlation they drew was for those people who focus perhaps a little bit more on the party than the marriage, that might be the setup for some some interesting issues. And the thing about weddings is it is this lovely party, but mostly a celebration of two lives coming together. And I am very curious to see if when we get a little further out in time, if people have decided to do something a little different, I, I don't know how that'll swing, right? You always have different people thinking different ways, but maybe some people will blow the lights out because they'll think time is short and why not? But I I wonder if more people will think, you know, I'm taking this commitment pretty seriously and I'm well aware of how fast things can change. Maybe I'm going to dial down the party and still have something fun and fabulous, but not so big and expensive or so expensive. Who cares if it's big? So I think there's a lot of potential there in weddings to see how this space turns out. Now, remember, while the divorce industry might be $50 billion plus, the wedding industry is bigger still. So there's a lot of people at risk here if we don't continue those big weddings, but it'll just be interesting to see how what people choose. I am curious the effect that the pandemic will have had on that because I know firsthand so many people that had to postpone or cancel and are now rethinking or just thinking about it again and making plans. Yes. When you have Two people who are married, they usually divide and conquer the finances with one person taking care of bills, paying those, and then the other one taking care of savings and investing. Is this what you're seeing in practice and is it working? Well, I think for some people it works beautifully and and then sometimes it works beautifully until it doesn't. One of the challenges that we talk about in a midlife group where I'm at, and of course I'm well past midlife, but um, I guess they've got me in the group maybe for a little wisdom, but who knows. What I notice is that women in particular can get quieter in a marriage as time goes on. And sometimes that's a lack of confidence and sometimes it's a show of confidence. It can entirely dependent on the two people involved, but One thing we still see, which is really frustrating, is that women don't participate fully in the finances that are that go beyond uh, the spending. So women make a lot of the spending decisions in a family and or a household, and they make a lot of the savings decisions. I still see many of them not involved deeply in the investing and planning decisions, and we would love to see that change. And I think the way it will change the fastest, and when I say this, you're going to go, that's not going to be very fast, which is true. But as we we share it with our girls, right? So our young girls, we tell them from a very young age, remember children can get their minds around money by the age of five pretty well. And what we want to make sure we're communicating is that uh, anybody over the age of 18, regardless of gender, really needs to be involved in their finances. And 
maybe we just need to sell it better because while we find it quite the exciting world, I talk to many women who are bright and curious about the world and they're still not interested in their money. So I do think it's a marketing problem in some respects and we can do a better job of getting them involved because as I tell everyone, the math it, you know, stopped at the sixth grade. Everybody can get their heads around their own money. And the reason to do that is to increase your own confidence around whatever it is you wanna do and get done. So it doesn't really sound very romantic to talk about money with marriage. So is this something that you see a lot of resistance in with your work or resistance yes. against, I should say? Yeah. So, you know, back to the weddings thing, we're always telling people before they get together, you're going to want to have certain conversations. You know, mate, do you want children? How many? What would we spend on children? But then, of course, you know, does the person, the only person who can still have the children if we're not adopting is the woman. And, you know, is she going to step out of the workforce? Is the other person going to stay home and take that financial injury? And of course, when I use language like this in a conversation, their eyes cloud over and they go, ah, oh, she's such a downer. I mean, here we are getting excited about getting married and what is she talking about? And I always joke, you know, just spend a week with me on the divorce work. And it's very instructive, right? These are good people who aren't going to go forward. And they, they could have made some course corrections along the way. So we want these couples who are, are thinking about getting together to, to have these conversations, which are not very romantic, but we can always say, you know, no penalty conversations, right? So this is maybe a tool that anybody would use in a relationship. I've got something to tell you. Uh, I need some humor around it, levity, lightness, or just for you to not penalize me later, right? The longer we go in a partnership or a marriage, the dysfunction sets in over time. That's normal people living together. And of course, we have some healthy examples, but I would say most of us are living with some level of dysfunction. And as time goes on, those conversations are predictable, right? You start to open your mouth, you start to go down the path, and the other person, eyes glaze over, roll up, and they go, yeah, I know exactly what you're going to say, and here's my response. And uh, a cure to that is to invite these no penalty conversations. So you touched on what happens if people decide not to move forward together, if they if they're deciding to move forward separately, how can they prepare their finances to separate without mutually assured destruction? Mm, that's a good way to think about it, because that's what happens if you're not going to understand the process you're signing up for, right? So one of the things that we tell people when they're facing this uh, personal earthquake of divorce is that if the two of you, well, first of all, we ask the question, does this really have to end in divorce? Is that true? Because we have some other options. You can do a postnuptial agreement. And creatively, there's really no limit to what you could do. But let's say, in this case, the marriage is not going to go forward. Well, when that's true, now we've just got to get to the end as financially stable as possible. So let's take our fictional couple of Dick and Jane, who are good people. They're trying to figure this out and they don't like each other very much. We're gonna take a, a harder case than the people who are completely amicable. And by the way, I will say uh, doing this 31 years now, Everyone starts off really amicable, but it's really tough to stay there when the money uh, starts to really get talked about or the rubber meets the road. So back to Dick and Jane, who don't like each other very much at this time and want to get done with this. We want them to get together enough, uh, share enough information so that things are transparent. Dick knows what 
They own, owe, and earn. So does Jane. And they can see it. And if they either one of them can't understand it, they get help for understanding it. But the whole point is to put models together and scenarios where Dick and Jane can wiggle their way to an agreement where the models are done again to demonstrate that neither Dick nor Jane has been sunk financially by their negotiations. And that's the point, because when we usually start off with Dick and Jane, we can see that Jane didn't get her retirement funded. She stepped out of the workforce. She's got lost her skills and her contacts and, and all of that. And Dick feels bad about that. But what Dick really feels bad about, understandably, is losing his money because he sees it as his money. So, And of course, I'm making a stereotypical couple. But I will tell you that now that we're seeing millennial divorce, it looks just like boomer divorce in many respects. So that's part of a bigger discussion. But I'll just say that the the way to avoid mutually assured destruction is to work together one more time as best you can to get to the end and understand what you're both agreeing to. So we've talked about the married folks. We've talked about the people who are deciding not to be married any longer. What about the person who's single, who's perhaps decided to stay single? What, what should they be focusing on? Yeah. So, you know, we do a lot of research for our presentations. And in the webinar, if you go to the website and sign up for that disruptions and solutions webinar, one of the statistics we cover is the single woman. And uh, surprisingly, I guess, I mean, I'm always surprised by this, maybe someone else would not be, but the single woman makes more female type decisions than we'd like to see her make because she's only responsible for herself in this situation. And we want her to take on, gosh, I got to be careful here. I don't want her to take on male attributes, but I wouldn't mind if she thought like a male for this purpose, because what we know from looking at the research is the single male still does better than the single female. Now, some of that's because of the disruptions that we talk about in that webinar, but some of them are self-inflicted. So that single woman is still not likely to be as well off as the woman who is in a secure marriage. And I find that fascinating. And she's also not going to be as well off as the single male in most cases. So there's some learnings there, right? And and we don't want to tell women your only hope of being really wealthy is to be married to a man and it works out well or have a married partner and it works out well. What we want to tell people is that it's a we it's a well-known path to wealth is a shared goal path where two people of any sort are working together but they're contractually bound seems to have some substance to why it works that way, right? I can't walk away on Thursday because I got this thing called a contract with us, a marriage, and it's so hard to get away from it. I'm going to hang in there a little longer. So because, you know, the old joke is, why didn't you and the other parent ever get divorced? And the answer is because we didn't want to get divorced on the same day because marriage is tough. But again, financially, that's your potentially simplest path to more wealth versus being single, but a woman single is like third down. So I, th I just find that really interesting. And there's a cure there, but it's probably cultural. You mentioned earlier in this conversation that, you know, one of the solutions is teaching teaching our daughters, teaching them early and often. We're seeing, you know, at least five generations of family is alive today. And would it be safe to say that each generation has a 
different or has their own money personality? And what what is a money personality? How would you describe that to somebody? Yeah. So a money personality, now there are financial therapists out there who will quibble with my definition. So they're right and I'm not. But when I think of a money personality, I'm thinking about traits and and defaults, right? So if I have a sunny personality, I might usually default to, well, that'll be okay. And if I have a darker personality, I might usually default to, that's never going to work ever. There's danger there. So our money personalities tend to reflect our experience to the day we're talking about things and that it informs how we react to things that pop up. And um, I forgot your first question about the money personalities. Well, just within perhaps several generations within the same family, how how does each generation differ in their in their money personalities? Yeah, so we still have people alive who experience the depression. And then you get down to the boomer generation and um, it's impossible to categorize generically that many people, but there is a portion of the boomer population that has a lot of the goods and financially, and they're probably not gonna give those up until their cold hard hands <laughs> have to. And I'm a boomer, so I, I, I think that might be a little bit of a prevalent mindset. Go down to the next generation and they're smaller than boomer and millennial gen x and and so they may feel a little forgotten but but financially they may be in something of a sweet spot we'll need another decade or so to find out but millennials the larger generation have a whole bunch of things in their money personality by now they will have seen the great recession and we don't know what's coming ahead uh, certainly they saw the first pandemic but so did those other generations. But the reason that it's affected by money is time of life. So millennials are buying homes, raising children. Boomers are past that for the most part. So it's, and we've got another generation that is learning about money on TikTok. Uh, nothing wrong with that, as long as it's good information. But so it's just fascinating to me that you could have five generations today and there would be great wealth of wisdom among those generations if they if if we were a society who talked about money. Someone that does talk about money a lot are financial advisors. We just talk a lot. We just talk a lot, period. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings me to my next question is, does everyone need an advisor to help them with their money? So, of course, self-serving. I think of this like the dentist, right? Do I need a dentist? I don't have any cavities. And all they ever do is go to the cleaning and, and I come home until they got some big deal like a crown or, you know, something else. And actually, I think the dentist comparison is a little bit apt because you got to have your teeth your whole life. Uh, it's the first uh, entry into the body where so many things, good and bad, can come in. And um, it's I certainly want my dentist in my life because this is a health issue, right? Primary health issue. That said, an advisor, you know, and dentists, I think most of us feel like dentists are expensive, personally. <laughs> Expensive. However, they fill a vital role. And most people look at advisors and they think they're a cost uh, to bear or to avoid, right? It's just, you know, I, what's so hard about money? I don't have much. What's the big deal? But there are many different kinds of advisors. And I think it's pretty well studied at this point that people who have advisors in many cases do better in the long run. And it's for the same reason that if I have a dentist, right? I just have that extra care and feeding and I, I'm gonna avoid mistakes. Like those cleanings, when I go to the dentist, they look in and they go, by the way, this is happening. So this is coming and you should prepare for that. It's, it's very similar to advising. 
We can't make the markets work in our favor. We can't make an inheritance happen. What we can do is take what you have and make it strong and good and grow. So from that aspect, I feel like advisors are translators in the world and they can really help people figure out, a good advisor will, you know, like a good therapist, make you figure out the answers and they're your guide, not your guru. And that's really important, right? So I'm going to guide you towards what you want when you want it and how much you're going to put towards it, because who cares what I want? It's it's really that process. And same thing about my teeth. You know, you might get the question of, you should have braces. And you look in the mirror and you go, I can live with this, or yes, I should. But the point is, is that you're, you're taking care of things in an orderly fashion. So I think more people should consider having an advisor, even if it's a one-off or occasional relationship, because we don't talk about money or and we don't teach money. So for that reason, it feels like at this moment in time, people should be connecting. And gosh knows during the pandemic, they have been doing that in droves. It would be difficult to find a financial advisor who has not been 10 times as busy during this period as any other. And that's great. People are waking up so to their to what money can do for them and what the, what the lack of money really means. And that part's unfortunate, but it's a great, you know, pushed us forward 10 years faster. There's a quote that I'm sure most of our listeners are, are somewhat familiar with. And I'm going to I'm going to read the quote and ask your opinion on it. Sure. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And I think that's the part that everyone remembers is nothing can be certain except for death and taxes. How should people think about this? So I, that particular quote you're, you read is Ben Franklin's quote, and there's actually a pretty well-documented story that the quote started much earlier, and I think it was in a play or whatever. So fascinating that he connected it to uh, in, a, in a speech to do with the Constitution. But I would say with that, what I think about there is, you know, the same reason we named this podcast, This Is Not a Dress Rehearsal. Nobody gets out alive, so we know that death is certain. So that brings up estate planning, right? And, and then the other piece is taxes. And there's so much talk about taxes right now because of the amount of debt we've taken on as a country and in many cases as individuals. So if you took a PPP loan and it got forgiven, for example, in many places that may come back in as income, even though it got forgiven. So I think that's still on the table to be decided. But that's the point about taxes. They're a moving target. And I guess what I would say about the context of the way we think about things like that is taxes is certainly a financial toll booth that is unavoidable on some level, but it can be managed. Inflation, again, unavoidable, but more difficult to manage because it's just pretty much what you're spending on would determine some of that. I think the other thing that uh, that brings to mind is having family conversations around these things. So you've got estate planning. It would be, I would perk my ears up if I heard a client say, you know, visited mom and dad this weekend and we talked about their wills and their estate plan. We never hear that ever. Do you uh, recommend that people have family meetings? I mean, is that something that would be helpful? 
Yes, of course. We say that all the time. Like we say a whole bunch of things that get ignored, but we absolutely say that. And and the reason we say that, we're back to those no penalty conversations. Mom and dad don't think they're going anywhere. They do think they're getting out alive and they think they're getting out alive without you taking their money. So, so we got, you know, I mean, I understand that, but it doesn't change the fact that by not making a plan, you actually have made a plan. And, and then, and then we get sort of the other thing, other extreme where people are trying to control from the grave, you know, all the things they want, they couldn't take care of in life. They're going to fix through. If you get my money, you have to do this. So lots of interesting things there, but we even have wealthy children who we encourage to have estate plans. And of course, if those wealthy children marry, we want them to have a prenup. Now we're back to the unromantic. Bonnie, what are you talking about? Uh, that's how I got this person that, you know, they, they saw how much I could bring. But there's just a whole level of conversations there. And I would say this, most people listening have sat in some conversation that was facilitated by another. So when you're standing in an estate planning attorney's office or a financial advisor's office, and these conversations feel difficult and stilted and uncomfortable, think about bringing in a facilitator, a professional facilitator, and you shouldn't see a lot of dollars on this because you're only using a short amount of their time, but they're there to listen to the conversations and to guide the conversations. They will have known ahead of time what the goal is. And the goal would be not to change someone's mind, uh, but to, you know, agree, get agreement that yes, we do need an estate plan. And the reason to share more financial information inside the circle of trust with the people that you love is because I think all of us carry stories of when that wasn't true. And the person who didn't share the information had other people experiencing unintended consequences that if they could have avoided those, we think they would have. So that's a long way of saying that I really think more of these conversations should happen. We always recommend them. And I can tell you, I could probably count on both hands the number of times someone came back and said, yeah, we took care of that. <laughs> it just takes uh, Works out great. <laughs> Works out great. They still love me. And it turns out I'm getting all their money. It doesn't really work like that. But, but there is just an opportunity there, even if it's baby steps. And even if you don't share numbers, you just share percentages of what will happen. Because remember, with those five generations alive, we all hope to get there for the most part. That means that a lot of that money is going to get dissipated and won't come your way anyway. But one thing that we do see as a phenomenon, which we'd like to stop seeing, is the parent who's a boomer or older who sacrifices their own health and wealth to a younger generation. And I maintain in most of the cases that I see those children, because they were raised well, would be horrified if they knew mom or dad was doing that. They would want mom or dad to be secure before making themselves insecure financially and making the children more secure. So it doesn't always work out that way, but I think that that's one of those places where a conversation would be really helpful. You know, it's a long time to live. It's a long time to pay for. People are doing their best, and sometimes the numbers don't work. It might feel like an awkward start to the conversation, but as you've mentioned, well worth it in the end for, yeah. for communication's sake. Well, our time is almost up here. We've loved getting to hear more about your thoughts around certain topics, but I did want to ask, you've mentioned a few webinars that are available on the website. Are there any other takeaways that our listeners should know about? 
Well, I just want to put one more thing into the answer about uh, families having conversations. One, one mistake I do see people making that is pretty solvable is it's not one big conversation. It's several small conversations. And the reason to have that facilitator or therapist or par other party who has nothing in the conversation to gain is because those small conversations add up. And just like when we're talking about a divorce negotiation and we tell people pauses are your friend, it's time to digest what's been discussed, it's time to reflect on it. It's the same thing with these conversations. The reason small bites work is because you give people time to catch up to your thinking. You might be absolutely correct. No one would argue you're incorrect, but being right doesn't win the day. So you're gonna do small bites and over time, you're gonna make a little bit of progress. And one day you'll look back and you've made significant progress. And that is a benefit to everybody. So I just wanted to make sure people understood I wasn't suggesting one big conversation, which frankly, I would freak out on. I don't wanna have one big conversation where everything matters. I wanna have a bunch of them so we're working stuff out. Now. Yeah, you asked about different resources. So I came across a fun book, which I can't recommend because I haven't read it yet, but I do want to bring it up. And I think it's called In the Meantime. And this book came up, yeah, it's called In the Meantime, colon, Finding Yourself and the Love You Want. So this is fascinating to me because not only do we have people who are divorcing and they're back out into the market of humans uh, for the first time in many decades, but we have young people who have not partnered up and are thinking, you know, maybe I won't. I don't seem to be finding anyone I, I care enough about. We have, uh, my youngest son happens to be single. I'll just put that out there. He's a <laughs> lives in the mountains of no no uh, but, but the point is he's made a life for himself and that's what this book addresses is in the meantime finding yourself before you find another so I love that concept and uh, I, I I don't know if the book is good but it gets great reviews and it was promoted on a in a group I was in by someone I think uh, has a lot to offer in terms of, of book recommendations on our site we have several webinars um, that people can uh, listen to the ebook is a quick and dirty uh, look at the at the basics of financial planning. So while that might not be appropriate for someone super experienced and already wealthy, we think it's a great tool for younger people and people who are new to their own finances. So that's free on the website. Take a look at that. And I would just make, I think next week, uh, and by the time this airs, this will be past us, but I think next week is uh, National Library Week. And of course, my sister is a librarian out in the Silicon Valley. And I still think, especially post-pandemic, libraries are one of our greatest resources. So I would say to people that don't forget about that resource. I know we can all dial into the uh, Amazon bookstore or any one of those and get a book with, you know, it's down at the end of the driveway waiting for the drone to bring it up. I know we can all do that. But I would say, you know, maybe support your local library because they can support you. So here's a little tip. When you want to read a financial book or any kind of book and 
even though I wrote a book and I think it's good, uh, you know, maybe there's 10 pages in a book that are applicable to what you're trying to learn. So you don't need to buy the whole book. Another reason that libraries are great. And you might not know this, but many libraries, if you request a book, they will buy it and you can obviously reserve it first. And so that's another way to get, and that's true for books and music and movies, just a, a lot of wonderful things they do. And some of our libraries now have even podcast rooms. We're doing our podcast in the comfort of our offices, but there's just so much your library can do. So I would say in general for resources, always start with the stuff that's right in front of you that's already well supported, but supported by things you already paid for. That's what I would say is a, a great resource. To remind our listeners, our website is AmericanCapitalPlanning.com. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Anything else you want to share with us? Well, you know, I will say this uh, just to wrap up. Of course, the, the name of the podcast is This Is Not a Dress Rehearsal, and we are coming out of something that has been quite rough. And for many people, we might not know how rough till we get to the fall or even later. So be kind with people, of course, give them a wide berth. But I would say that one of our main messages when we're working with people and their money is that celebrating wealth is the point regardless of how much you have. In this time period, we've seen extremely wealthy people go so far beyond. They have more money than many governments. I hope they end up being nice people. We're going to need them. Um, they don't need us necessarily. So, and remember that our economy is 70% supported by consumers. But if you're trying to build wealth, maybe you don't want to participate in the same way that you used to. Maybe you need to you know, bring the fires home and take care of your own for a while. So I just want to say that it's been an unusual year and I'm grateful that we're here and family is safe and relatively secure. We have had job losses in the family in this time and people are still standing. So I just wish everybody the best. And I, I would love to see our conversations continue around money. Most of the time on our podcast, we're not discussing money. And there's, if, if anyone's wondering what the reason for that is, is because we do think the information is so widely available and there's so many people talking about money. And when you're listening about money, it can only be rules of thumb because the real wealth is in what matters to you. So that's a personal conversation, not a podcast. But in the meantime, we hope we bring you stories of people who are living their lives, regardless of what bumps them around. And we hope you enjoy those stories. And if you would like us to have anyone in particular on that you think would be a great podcast guest, by all means, reach out to Jesse, J-E-S-S-I-E, at American Capital Planning. Thanks, Jesse. It's been fun. Thank you. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.